I did not understand finance deeply at all by reading a textbook. I would argue that a lot of people read something and believe that they are experts in it. I think you need to go out and do things and experience things um, to be able to simplify those concepts to yourself and other people. And it's in that simplification that I believe exists understanding. Welcome back to the show. Today, my guest is Jim Kroll. Jim was a Big Ten tennis player for Penn State, where he double majored in finance and economics. He's been a coach in some capacity since he was about 14 years old. He's traded commodities for an energy trading hedge fund, and he's owned and sold multiple gyms. Jim was also the CEO of OPEX Fitness, where he learned a lot about coaching education, facility licensing, and remote coaching. Needless to say, Jim has done a lot of things throughout his career, and I think this makes him that much more fascinating to talk to. Um, We dive into his current roles as it relates to the Sage House where they invest and consult with fitness and wellness companies, and we dive into the specifics around the integration of technology into fitness and where he thinks that world and industry is going. There's so much awesome stuff packed into this. You're going to love it. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. Real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Jim Kroll, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Derek. It's going to be fun, man. Yeah, we're going to have a blast. I was uh, before we we got on air. I was saying this is the earliest podcast we've done, and <laughs> I don't know if you can tell by my sleepy eyes or because of the light blaring in the window. I might have to invest in some blinds or just like move the window range or that I could that I accept podcast. But yeah, we're doing this one at eight a.m. Man, so bright and early, getting moving. Well, we're on the East Coast too, so it's it's not a it's not a super bright eight AM yet, at least where I am. I see a lot of gray outside of my window. <laughs> but yeah, no, you, you you're out <laughs> Yeah, no worries. Uh you're out in Pittsburgh, correct? Yeah, I've uh, I tell people often i I'm a bit of a mutt. I've lived all over. I've had a couple different careers, uh, and currently I'm in Pittsburgh, but travel an awful lot. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I, uh, I went to school close to Pittsburgh and growing up in Eastern Pennsylvania, it was like culture shock. You might as well have transplanted me and put me in Pakistan. Like I was <laughs> so, I was just not, it was, it was out of my, my norm. That's for sure. I, uh, the story I always tell just to sum the whole experience up was I spent about three years out there and, and we did travel quite, quite a bit to, to Pittsburgh and some of the neighboring schools like Penn state and such. And when I was out at IUP, I was at a party and, and the cops busted it and the cops came in and he goes, Yin's been drinking. Yeah. <laughs> and I lost it. I lost <laughs> it. I was like, where did I go to school? This is crazy. Yeah. Pitt- Pittsburgh's a, it's a great town. I've, I've actually lived here three different times. So I've kind of seen the city change evolve and, it, there's it's definitely blue collar in, in terms of like deep down in the gut of Pittsburgh, but there's a lot of technology coming in. And so it's it's sort of this 
evolving blob of an old steel town with a lot of different offshoots of types of people. So it's I kind of enjoy it out here. I'm sure I would appreciate it on a whole new level if I were to go back now. I mean, in, in full transparency, I have not been back very much. I think I went back once since college to visit a friend at Penn State. So um, yeah, it's it's been a minute, but uh, I just remember how unique the experience was. And I yeah. still pick on my friends from Pittsburgh for it. So it's... <laughs> of course. Yeah, I mean, as, as well you should. <laughs> yeah. yeah, precisely. Well, uh, you are a guest that was recommended from another guest that I had in, in Sean Pastouche. And he was like, I think uh, that you and Jim would have a, have a really, really good conversation. So I'm hoping that he is right and uh, hits the mark on this one. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, Sean, Sean thinks about things big and so when he recommended that i jump on i you know i didn't really have to think about it so i'm excited for the chat for sure yeah and and in doing the research you know on your background and and just diving into your bio a little bit it became very apparent to me that i was going to enjoy this conversation because um as i was saying to you before we hopped on like i love learning from people and hearing from people that think very laterally. And I think that life experience is what allows, that's the greatest separator of what allows someone to be able to do something like that. And you've, you've done a lot. And, um, I do want to dive into quite a bit of those things. So, um, you know, you, you dabbled into a lot of different things and I, you know, you started with this degree in finance and economics, but you were also a big 10 tennis player. And I think, Having that duality of being very focused in school, but also being an athlete is not an easy pursuit. Um, and it's, it's, I would even go to say it's not a common one. Um, you know, can you speak to the kind of the difficulties or what allowed you to, to be able to find that balance between those two things? Yeah, I was, I was a late bloomer in tennis um, where I wasn't even ranked in the city of Pittsburgh, I think, when I was 16. And then I found really good coaches, um, frankly, somewhat stumbled upon them and just fell in love with the the idea of training and learning the sport as compared to showing up and hitting some balls. And um, I, I ended up getting pretty good in tennis and then played for Penn State. But this early theme that I probably didn't recognize until I was 30 years old started happening at Penn State, which was... I actually was most interested in learning about the sport and training around the sport as compared to um, wins and losses. Now, keep in mind, I'm, I'm, I'm competitive SOB, right? So I really dislike losing. So there's certainly that side of me, but I love to learn things and I pick that up in a big way. So to specifically answer your question, I, I actually... I pledged a frat at the same time that I was getting into playing tennis and double majoring. And so I was way over my skis in terms of number of things that I needed to do, but that sort of just cemented, I don't know, my personality of just work hard. That's kind of, you know, the moniker that I've always kind of had on my shoulders. And, um, I learned a ton actually, probably even more from the fraternity side of things, because that was real world stuff that was going on, right? Like you have a hundred guys in a house, you know, doing things maybe that are some things smart, some things not so smart. And it's like, you learn quickly um, how to deal with problems. And so that was really beneficial for me. But I, I went into Penn State thinking I wanted to go work on Wall Street. That was, that was it. And so I tried to set myself up to do that. You know, so I did the standard, was in the investment association, all that stuff when I was playing a sport. And 
I ended up losing the love on the tennis side because I didn't feel like I was growing in my pursuit or my understanding of the game. But I found a love on the training side, the physical training side, because we had good trainers at Penn State. And so the combination of business and fitness or health really started to cement, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, and that, you know, what, depending on what we go into about what I did after that, you, you'll see those commonalities, you know, across my entire career. I, I, I keep coming back to business slash finance and fitness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, it's become somewhat cliche because now it's been mentioned a lot, but uh, there is this correlation between fitness and and. Uh, business in the way that you can associate progressive overload, where it's it, once you understand that principle in one of those domains, you can understand its application to some degree or another in the other one, which is that, you know, you have this stress recovery adaptation component, which is basically like you will place this stressor on yourself, whether it be time under tension in learning, you know, the ins and outs of business or finance, but also in fitness, you know, and then you recover from that, you digest, you expose yourself to the elements, you know, you kind of play with those ideas a little bit inside of that new found environment. And then you get the adaptation benefit, which is, you know, in, in business, it's like the confidence and the wisdom and the networking. Whereas in fitness, it's, you know, the muscle gain, the cardiovascular, uh, you know, changes and such. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that parallels, it, it's fascinating. And I know it's been mentioned so much, but it is so true. Yeah, it's, I mean, one of the one of the models that I like a lot is Warren Buffett and how he built Berkshire. And one of the things that Buffett has said for, I mean, decades at this point is that you you don't just you don't just create something. You have to go out and compound something. And so to your point on adaptation, it's a compounding effect. And so. Mm if you're aware of what you're doing and if you have a a model of some sort whether it's strength training or business growth you have to learn and become very conscious about the system that you're building and you have to continue to build that system based on what is maybe important about it and so the importance is what his term of competitive advantage would be so um i've definitely built my mindset around where is your and your could be a company, a gym of whatever, um, where is your competitive advantage? How do you grow within that competitive advantage? Because that's the, that's the ultimate expression of that pursuit, if that makes sense. So yes, this, this, the second you start spitting off energy outside of that competitive advantage, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of relate it back to strength training, right? But the second you spit off energy outside of that, you actually dilute the competitive <clears> advantage. <throat> and so you lose compounding effect. So I would argue, right, like overtraining or whatever somehow allows you to spit off some of the potential progress that you had. So there are maybe some universal principles that definitely play through. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's said that what limits people in business is skills, character traits, or self-beliefs. And I think that self-belief component is one that's really hard for people to tango with. Um, because what I have found is that it, it's a hard pill for people to swallow because the thing that is the self-belief is not something they believe to be a belief in that moment. Mm. So it isn't until 
they move into a new environment and are surrounded by people that don't adopt uh, that belief or have, um, you know, they're not indoctrined by that same belief system that you get this transparency in this moment where you experience like, okay, wow, like I, I took that as fact and in actuality it was belief. But now by being in this new environment, surrounded by these people that think differently than me, I've upgraded my software. Would you say that this has kind of happened to you through your life as you've kind of immersed yourself into some new communities? Yeah, I'm, it's, it's interesting. I'm extremely self-confident in certain areas, but I'm also, um, I need to see factual evidence and proof that things are working. So I'm pretty analytical. And so to kind of bring this to your point, what I need to do is to experience the good and the bad around something to understand how the system of that something works. So for example, I did not understand finance deeply at all by reading a textbook at all. I mean, and you know, maybe I'm less intelligent than some, but I, I would argue that a lot of people read something and believe that they are experts in it. And I just sort of fundamentally disagree with that concept. I think you need to go out and do things and experience things um, to be able to simplify those concepts to yourself and other people. And it's in that simplification that I believe exists understanding. Um, and so whether it be strength training or, or getting healthy or even business, what what is your basis of proof what is your experience level for real and then what do you do with that experience so a lot of people experience things but have no awareness around what they've experienced so they don't actually grow so it's sort of this combination i um i've been talking about you know strategy execution measurement refinement whatever you want right like there's there's whatever compounding effect you want to call it but if you don't go through the process of actually thinking about something, executing on it, measuring it, and then learning from that understanding, you don't continue to get better. Um, now, I would, I would definitely argue on the health side, I think that there is maybe a little bit of a proliferation around trying to be quote unquote too healthy, right? Which is potentially adding stress for people. Um, but I, I do think that that concept is very real. You have to you have to be aware of where you want to go and what you're experiencing if you want to continuously get better. Absolutely. Well, for someone that's, that thinks very analytical in, in yourself, you know, I think one of the things I've always appreciated was this better or deeper understanding of learning in that there's this irony associated with, with it and, and kind of a confusion of terms when, when people think a stack of books that is, you know, next to them. They're like, Hey, like, and I, I was victim to this and, or I should say was at fault for the longest time of like, look at all the books I read last year. And it's like, yeah, but it's like, how do you define learning? Because if you have a behavior, right. And then, or a condition and associated with a behavior, and then you have the same condition and the same behavior, it's like, you didn't improve, right? Like in order for learning to have taken place, there has to be the same condition and a new behavior associated with it. And I think that the way that you are able to determine that is through measurement, right? It's through being able to say, yes, I know for a fact I've executed because this, this relationship between condition and behavior has changed, you know, and yeah. in that way, I know I've learned. And I think that's why, you know, I always now, I now, I think more of like, I'd rather read the great books 
hundred times than read crappy books, <laughs> read a read a hundred crappy books. Yeah, it's interesting. I I go back and forth on on quantity and quality in terms of reading and learning. I you know I, I'm the type of guy I never read fiction. I I just don't. I you know we I have that don't. in common. Yeah, right. So um, a lot of people have told me forever that I should read fiction because it helped turn my brain off. I'm not the type of guy whose brain likes to turn off. Um, it's just kind of how I am. But I do think that there is. I do think there's viability in a diverse, you know, content intake, right? So I love the idea of reading the great books and understanding them very deeply, but I like the idea of seeing diverging opinions um, and thoughts because I think it makes you think. Um, so I, I, I'm just kind of saying I don't have a very strong opinion on always deep learning versus, you know, sort of open to other ideas. And I, you'll see that in me, right? I, I, I typically stay within some sort of business finance biography, because I think the stories mixed with the learning, it, that's sort of what gets deeply down into my brainstem. So I like that style, but I'll go all over the place within that style. Um, what I do think is important, or at least something that always kind of comes up for me is the idea of People, I think, would do well to think about this, you know, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and then conscious incompetence, excuse me, inconscious <laughs> competence, right? So if we're thinking about learning, you're always on one of those stages, right? And, and to me, once you are very unconscious about the things that you are very competent in, you have learned them, right? Like you, you can actually articulate or um, project whatever the learning was to other people. And I, I would go so far to say until you can do that, you know, for a fifth grader, you don't necessarily deeply understand something. So, you know, there's a lot of people that explain things in such overly complicated terms, right? I have no problem with that, but until they can articulate it in a way that a fifth grader could at least understand the broad concept, I would argue they have a level or multiple levels to go. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so true, right? I mean, that's and that's where, you know, I, I'm 34 now. I actually just turned 34 a couple of days ago, and um, you know, it's funny looking back both at myself in reflection, but also just at the coaching world in general. And and you see this this Dunning Kruger effect taking place for kids that are just getting out of school, just getting involved with coaching. They've never really experienced any major setbacks with their body. Their bodies pretty much listen to everything they've done. You know, they're in like very, very fast uh, and, and high rate of adaptation mode. And they're like, everything I do works. So everything I do must be the best. I know everything about everything, you know, and, they, and not to mention like on the goods, they want to go out and change the world. Um, and I think that there's some good to be found in that. But as you get older, you just start, you know, and this is, this is the irony or the paradox with the Dunning-Kruger effect is like the more of an expert you become, the less certain you feel. You start actually using terms like, some of the time, maybe that might happen rather than like, never all of the time, you must do this, you must do that. It's, oh, man, this is a hard one. Um, particularly in fitness. I, I've seen a lot of different styles of fitness from a lot of different angles. I, I owned CrossFit gyms. Um, you know, I've run boot camp classes, I've taught strength and conditioning, right? I've, 
I, I was at OPEX for a while. And of course, that was individual design with a deep emphasis on program design and life coaching and nutrition and assessment. And you know, so I, I've seen lots of different versions of this. And maybe to your earlier point, I'm very much in the camp of it depends on the end human, meaning who wants to get healthy and or fit. And what is it that they are really seeking within that pursuit of fitness? Because I've seen lots and lots of people who come in with an extremely competent coach who's got 20 years of experience, but they don't connect on the emotional level and they have no results, right? I've, I've seen people come in with a two-year experienced coach and get all of these positive results. Um, I'm not suggesting that less experience is better. I'm just saying that it's, I think it is a little bit more complicated because I believe humans are very complicated creatures and the right connection with a coach or a group or a facility or an environment matters a lot. So um, I think low experience can still be beneficial to a point. Like you can get people excited for a pursuit, which a lot of I've actually seen again back to 20 year coaches, if they're not still excited about their job they lose a lot of people because people need a feeling of I'm working towards something. I have this support system. So I think that the emotional mixed with the experiential, if that's what we're going for on the learning side matters a whole bunch to your point though, if you want to continue to compound on those results, that level of experience to me is extremely important. And I think you see it in a lot of lower experienced coaches where at 12, 16 months, right? Progress stops. Um, I don't know what your experience was, but I think that the greatest way to highlight that point is looking at tenured professors or teachers. Mm -hmm. You just start to see the meaning start to fade away. And I feel like I just got less and less from them, whereas the, my younger professors and teachers were just so enthusiastic about what yeah. they were learning. Um, yeah. and we're keeping up with the science and, and we're willing to engage in conversation around new ideologies or new thoughts, you know, in, in the exercise science space. So, yeah, I think there's that also, exists el elsewhere. Yeah, there's there's also um, there's truth in that experience. You know, so if you've got 25 years of experience as a professor and I'm picking numbers out of a hat and <clears> you see that 7 percent of your students, no matter what you do, are engaged that takes a toll. <laughs> you know what I mean? Fair enough. Like that, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, and that's what I mean about to your point. It, it, it depends, right? It depends on who's sitting in front of you. It depends on what kind of energy they're spitting off. It depends on where they want to go pursue, whether it's education or a career. Um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why your network or your group of close friends or colleagues or peers matter so much because, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a, a good group of just buddies who have stayed in touch for decades and we push each other. We have fun with one another. You know, it's that matters to me as much as most any of my business relationships, because um, it's a matched energy, if you will. So mm -hmm. I think that's really big, which is, again, why the type of fitness or wellness and the emotional connection to it is so important for the end consumer. For sure. Yeah. And I wanted to rewind to that point. So I'm really glad that you, you, you pulled that out at the end. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we tell our coaches, regardless of how long they've been with us, is that everyone that comes through our door just wants to feel better. So if you are able to bring the energy and make them 
feel like they want to be there, regardless of how much they love or hate exercise, you will not only uh, maintain your clientele base, but you will change lives. Because like that's at the end of the day, like people want to come in, they want to have fun. And in the beginning, that fun may look more like their conversation with you as a coach and less like them actually doing work. But with enough time and instruction, um, that behavior change can take place. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, you said you're 34. I'm almost 40. And again, I've seen a lot of different environments with this fitness thing and retention is a top priority in these gyms and retention is not reps and sets it just isn't no i mean it's there's so much more to it it's it's the relationship component hands down uh, and, and it's multiple nodes of relationship right it's the coach to the client it's the gym to the client it's the client to the other clients it's you know uh there, there's so many components of this thing that make up how somebody feels when they walk into the gym or when they leave the gym. Uh, and, and it's that to me, that's the most important. And uh, you're seeing lots of technology hit the market right now, trying to improve on that. Some of it's good, some of it's garbage, but it's that the reps in the sets are a byproduct of if the person is interested in following you in this health pursuit. Yeah. And, and the, the technology is good and great, but it's just an extension of the touch points of the coaches and the personnel at the facility in the first place. You know, like you're not going to grow. You, okay, let me rephrase that. You can grow your facility through automation, but you're not maintaining it. Like automation yeah. is is not going to be the, the catalyst or the vehicle to getting to 100% retention or even attrition. You know what I mean? Like you need yeah. that personal touch. And I think that's where you're never going to be able to compete like like Peloton is never going to be able to compete with a with a in-person experience purely due to the fact that like having a trainer one-on-one that is there and em- to be empathetic with you in person is is always going to exceed the abilities of being on vi- like video with somebody in my opinion i could um, be totally wrong in that no i think i think you're right for a specific type of consumer fair enough yeah you know so for I'm picking an example just because I know many of them for a mother who works a full time job who's working from home. Peloton is probably significantly more intriguing for her than it is uh, driving or getting on a subway or whatever to go to a live class and purely that due can, to time constraints. Well, pure, purely or, do. Yeah, because or just family, constraints right? in general, yeah. totally or cash, right? Because, well, I have to go get um, at home care and da, 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 da. There's there's a ton of reasons behind it. Um, I think from an energy standpoint, all things equal. Yes. If you're in a room with a rave like environment with an instructor who's paying attention to you, that's pretty special. No doubt about it. It's just that it's not realistic, you know, right. in every situation. Yeah. Now, one of the things I wanted to to jam with you on was you. So you were the CEO of uh, OPEX for quite a while, correct? Yep. Yeah. yeah I was, so I was I wasn't the CEO the whole time, but I was there 2014 to 2020. Nice. So OPEX was, I would say, the first big company and brand that came into the fitness and CrossFit space and said, hey, this methodology is great, 
but I think that people would see far more results and we could create an even better experience by providing an individual design aspect to this. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, the maybe the underlying foundation of OPEX was principles matter. And the principles of training would be you probably shouldn't try to do butterfly pull-ups if you can barely hang from the bar. And while that sounds so simple with you and I just riffing one-to-one, clearly CrossFit had built a brand that was trying to get to the butterfly pull-up as fast as possible. And I can understand why. I mean, I owned CrossFit gyms. I love the, I love the idea of CrossFit, but there's clearly a going too fast component to it, which leads to at a minimum bad technique or maximum can be problematic, you know, from an injury standpoint or whatever. Um, The issue is that it's never deeply been studied about, well, what does every single person need? So OPEX comes in and says, um, it would be far more advantageous to look at each individual for where they are, meet them with the right training, nutrition, you know, to get them to go from where they are today to where they ultimately want to go and put them on a plan that continuously meets them where they are. So if you want to be a CrossFit Games athlete, there's a clear bucket of items you have to be quite capable of doing you have to be able to do whatever it is you know 12 unbroken muscle ups and 35 unbroken chest to bar butterfly pull-ups and you got to be able to back squat 405 and you know blah 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 blah. well if you are years away from that and you try to fast track that it's very likely that you will face significant problem somewhere in that for regular people who aren't athletic trying to do all of that athleticism before they have the base strength or mobility or even the athletic movement capability is problematic. You know, so, you know, James Fitzgerald is who created, it was OPT first and then became OPEX. Um, OPEX was sort of the more scientific approach to how to do functional fitness um, consistently well for every client. Yeah, we um I wanted to throw something in there. So we we have a, a a deep catalog of goal reviews that we've done with our members over the last 11 years or so and one of the things that I have found really fascinating is that as our culture has changed, the goals have changed. And part of this can just be by the types of people that we've attracted, but I think an even greater uh or better way to look at this is to accept that as our culture has changed, people have changed their refinement of their goals. So what used to look like, Derek, I want to be able to do butterfly pull-ups, clean my body weight, and do you know kipping handstand push-ups now looks like I want to be able to press overhead without shoulder pain. Yep. I want to be able to squat below parallel without hip pain. I want to be able to run without my plantar fasciitis acting up, you know, or developing shin splints. And I think that in large part, that's just become the, because of the culture that has changed inside of the gym. So while there is this idea behind like, okay, we can better, um, we can better create individual design to make sure that we are pushing you towards, uh, you know, your, your ability as an athlete systematically over time. But I think we've also kind of changed the goalposts. 
to some degree. You know, and I think that falls on the responsibility of the gym owners because ultimately as us, as gym owners and coaches, like we're the experts. So people want to do what we want to do. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that is an extremely important point. If you open a gym that has a brand around NFL football or a brand around professional CrossFit or a brand around, um, you know, becoming a professional bodybuilder you're likely going to attract people that are intrigued by those concepts, whether they, you know, whether they should be doing those concepts or not is a completely different conversation, but they would probably at least attract people who would be intrigued by that. What I think is interesting though, is let's go back a couple minutes ago. Every single model has to be able to keep people engaged for a long period of time. So one of the things that I loved about CrossFit, it, it, I mean, I owned multiple gyms in the CrossFit space and our people stayed for a while and they loved doing the classes. Now, keep in mind, we, we kind of did CrossFit, keep my, I owned my gyms from 2010 to 2014. So it was kind of in that early mid side of CrossFit, like truly it was peaking, you know, when we, it was, it was fun times. It was fun times. And and so, (laughs) but we, we recognized that most normal humans needed a lot more, call it prep work or general prepared strength training to ever attempt those things. And so we were kind of doing CrossFit maybe slightly differently than other groups back then. And I think what you're seeing is that many, many, many gyms over the last, whatever it is, five or 10 years are moving more towards a model that's a little bit more sustainable, even in a group side of things, because they've recognized that these are normal humans, right? Like very few humans can or should attempt to do what they see the best athletes in the world doing at the CrossFit games. And, And that's fine, right? But to your point, whatever the gym is personifying, that is most likely what the goals will be built around for many of their customers. And so to me, until that changes, most people are probably going to want muscle ups and, you know, heavy back squats and whatever. For sure. Yeah. And I think it's not even, uh, just these glorified, very high skill gymnastics movements that we have to put under the microscope. It's also just the volume that comes with some things. Like if someone comes to me and they're like, Hey Derek, like, I want to be able to be an active grandparent and play with my kids or my grandkids and, um, you know, be able to travel pain free and be able to walk 10,000 steps a day to explore these different cities. Like doing a hundred box jumps in a workout is just not necessary. Like it's just, you know what I mean? There's nothing that doesn't fall anywhere where it is any relevant on that continuum of them where they're at to where they're, you know, where they want to be. I very much agree just for the sheer sport of it all. I saw lots of 50 plus year old people um, completely change their lives in a CrossFit environment. But at some point they did have to maybe reevaluate what they were there for. So I think, you know, the, the point that I'm sort of taking from what you said is until you can maybe cut under the surface of what somebody says they want initially, most likely you're not reaching the core of the issue of why they signed up in the first place. So I think it's really important for any gym to have process 
to dig under the surface with their clients to some degree, right? Some clients don't want to touch it and that's, that's all good. But yeah. many clients do want to show up and have a conversation here and there about um, not what they ate, but maybe why they ate it, right? That's really key. Now, I'm not suggesting that coaches become psychologists. That's a, a, not the game they want to play, but they do need to be great conversationalists. They do need to be great question askers because ultimately people stay consistent when they have connection to or inspiration from why they showed up to the, in the gym in the first place. Yeah. And we can teach others to be more deeply inquisitive about themselves, you know, and just curious in general, like, yep. you know, I, I love, uh, Lane Norton's take on nutrition more times than not. And like one of the things that he, he talks about is how hunger is one of the lowest things on the, the, the totem pole as far as like why people actually eat, you know, like mm -hmm. the other, the, all the other areas of stress and boredom and everything in between are far more often the cause than like, oh, I'm actually feeling a lack of satiation right now and I need, I need fuel. Um, so I think you're right. Like being able to um, have those conversations around people's behavior and make them think about their lives a little bit more intrinsically, um, you know, is, is a really good benefit to have as a coach. Well, and we, if we are going to segment the end consumer like we've been doing so far, we do have to at least say the clients that we're serving are at least middle to upper class clients who don't have typically as deeply primal of problems as other people, right? So they aren't actually hungry, right? They, they don't typically not have a place to live. You know, like it is, we have to be in the right audience if we're going to have these real conversations. And if we're in that audience, without a doubt, you know, just go to Maslow, right? Like they are probably trying to find some middle to upper tier on the hierarchy of needs. They're probably not trying to find safety per se. Um, but until they have an understanding of where they are on that pyramid, it's just, it's unconscious, right? And so the idea we're trying right. to do, in my opinion, is to help make it conscious for them so that they are connected to why they show up every day because we just want consistency for five years. Like they could show up every day, not every day, right? But every week for five years. And it's pretty tough for them not to have decent results, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's ultimately what coaches want. Show up weekly for five years and I'm pretty sure you'll be in a better spot. Oh, at least at the <laughs> right. very least metabolically, like aesthetically, right. you might be the same, you know, and yeah. that, that, you know, in large part, that's because there's so many other components involved, but yeah, your metabolic health will be, you know, years behind what it was when you first came in, just in yeah. terms of your internal age. Um, yeah, no, those, those are all great points. Um, now you, you've owned and sold a couple different gyms. Do you, do you miss being a gym owner at all? I got to tell you, I loved coaching group class on the floor. I loved it. Um, I far preferred that than personal training. I far preferred that than writing programs, you know, being an online coach. Um, I really enjoyed being in that energetic environment with people. Um, I did it for too many hours a day for too long. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but I, I, I do miss that. I mean, yeah, now that I'm back in Pittsburgh, everybody keeps asking me, oh, well, you're going to open a gym again. I'm, I'm just in a very different game, you know, than I than I was back then. But I would love to be a part of a gym like that again, 
just in a much smaller capacity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, being 11 years in, it's, I'm part of different mentorship groups and you see people selling their gyms left and right. And I'm like, I literally would just sit in my chair and I'd be like, well, what the hell do I do now? <laughs> like yeah. I, you know, and, it, and, and, and it came to me, it was like, start another gym. And I'm like, well then what the hell's the point? You know? right. So yeah. I am somebody that, uh, even as the business grows and we find, you know, a certain level of success and, and, and opportunities elsewhere start to um, open up to me, I still want to be very involved in my facility. You know, and maybe someday that'll change. You know, we, we have a daughter coming in March, you know, who knows as the grand, as the family grows and as other businesses take off, maybe that changes, but I don't see it. You know, I'm, I'm still very, very much integrated in that community and, and love being a part of it. Yeah. I've, I've had a couple different careers, if you will. So I'm, I'm always a guy that would say you never know, but if you have that sort of connection to whether it's the people or the concept that you're behind, man, how cool is that? I mean, from a business standpoint, I mean, you would tell me this, but as long as it's viable, you know, and as long as you're making margin on it, great. I mean, you make the thing run itself and then you have an asset that produces cash flow for you. You can do other things if you want, you know, podcast included. Um, yeah, for so sure. I, yeah, it's, I, I think that people, Yes, their life changes, but a lot of people that I know that are selling gyms simply haven't gotten enough success. So they're not in an environment that can actually take care of their entire livelihood. So that is stressful for them. Yeah, I mean, it's not as easy to measure, but for me, it just comes down to if I wake up in the morning and I'm excited to do my work. You know, like you yeah. can you you can't measure it per se, but you know. You yep. know what I mean? Like, you know, and, and for me, it's, it's the ability and, and don't get me wrong. Like there's plenty of things in the business that's, that I find irritating and there's things that I delegate and there's things that, you know, there's fires I put out on a regular basis, but you know, by and large, when I do these larger scale reflections, be it quarterly or annually, and I look back, I'm like, this is really freaking cool. You know, yep. like I'm just so excited to be a gym owner and be able to work with the people I work with. So, yeah, there's um, yeah, there's there's something so cool about uh, being at the local level, changing people's lives. Period. I mean, I, I felt yeah. really good about that at OPEX. You know, when we were working with coaches, I felt connected through coaches. You know, I mean, it's there's something very noble about that. No doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, I've even questioned if it would exist if I were to get more involved in the online space, because there's a degree of separation there. And I was like, I'm not convinced yet that that would have the same type of feeling. You know what I mean? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've played deeply in the online space too, and it can, it can be highly connective. I mean, I know that you spoke to Marcus and I've known Marcus for a long time and, and there are thousands of people who are deeply connected to both Marcus and functional bodybuilding. Um, it is a powerful medium. And again, it's for the right type of a client, you know, so there's, but, but keep in mind, uh, most people who go online do it in sort of a one person, you know, one man band show. Marcus now has a team. So the content they put out is exquisite. And, you know, the way that they message is exquisite and their program and the operations behind how they deliver the program is exquisite. Right. And to your point, there's always things that can be improved. 
but that takes a while to build that and not everybody has capacity to do that um and so it's it's it is i would say it's harder to develop that sort of connection online but whether it's the capex required to actually get something up and running or it's not needing to pay the rent of a gym right like there's there's trade-offs and other components that might make it more appealing for some yeah, no, certainly. Um, and, and Marcus does do a fantastic job of, of putting that together. And I think, you know, he's got the patience um, and the background to be able to do it. And, and obviously his team is, is just tremendous. So they yeah. do really good stuff. Uh, now, you know, being somebody that's been in the business space and in the fitness space for a while, you know, I just wanted to pick your brain. Where do you think things are going here? I mean, we've seen the emergence of these companies like Orange Theory and F45 and how some of them not doing so hot, you know, compared to others. But, uh, you know, I think it's really interesting to be able to have the conversation around like what's next for fitness, you know, like what do you think is coming? Uh, it might help contextually for listeners. So what I do now is, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a co-founder in this company called The Sage House and it's kind of a two-sided business. We do consulting for fitness and wellness companies, and we invest in fitness and wellness companies. So um, I'm looking at fitness technology, health technology, uh, fitness concepts, boutiques, large-scale gyms, you know, da-da-da-da. So we, we are definitely looking at the space in a very aggressive way. Let me quick recap. I just sent out my annual investor newsletter. <laughs> so um, a quick recap is that fitness got absolutely decimated. Uh, I should say brick and mortar fitness got completely decimated in 2020 with COVID. And most of brick and mortar fitness is about 70 to 80% returned. There are certainly some small one-offs that are back to 100% capacity, but for the most part, they're at 70 to 80% capacity even after COVID, which is not great. Um, what happened in 2020 is that the rise of connected fitness happened. It was beginning to happen before COVID, and then it got crazily sped up because of COVID. And in 2021, many of those connected fitness companies vastly overestimated how much their demand would go up. And so 2022 was the reckoning for connected fitness. Peloton got absolutely destroyed. Now there was some dumb business things that they did. You know, Tonal got destroyed. Like, this is what I'm hearing, right? Uh, and you're seeing it with big layoffs and everything like that. Many of the connected fitness products that had gotten pretty big came back to earth, right? That doesn't mean they're going out of business per se. It doesn't mean that they're not still fantastic products and companies. They came back to earth. What you're also seeing is that data is now everywhere. But for the most part, it's still pretty poorly designed in terms of the user experience. So all this data exists, but very little of it is being used effectively to create change. Um, brick and mortar is looking for the next direction and they are trying to understand how to do hybrid or how to do omni-channel. So a lot of brick and mortar attempted to go online during COVID, and I would argue most of them don't like being online at all. They, it's a much bigger nut to crack than they would have expected. And it also goes to show you how well Peloton actually did it because they captured such a large audience. So 
it's not as simple as brick and mortar thought to deliver an in-person and an online experience, though they know they have to be hybrid in the future. So to me, what is coming in 23 and, and maybe beyond is here are the themes. I think longevity is going to play a huge and important factor. That's massive and it's going to stay massive. People want to live longer and live better longer. Um, I think strength training is definitely going to continue to be a theme. Um, because people are realizing that you, you strength helps, right? Not, not overwhelming strength, but just an amount of resistance training helps a lot. Um, I believe that data is going to be better organized and better understood and subsequently will create better suggestions and better customer journeys for people to get better results and have better experiences. Um, I think that's going to be a lot better. I also think that you're going to see a lot of, you know, the last seven to 10 years of things like computer vision work. I think you're going to see that becoming woven into experiences because it helps gyms and it helps coaches scale up dramatically. Um, I think the connected hardware space will consolidate, meaning I, I think you could see multiple rowing companies end up as one rowing company and, you know, or you could see rowing go with stair masters and and uh, treadmills. Like I, I could see that sort of consolidating into you know a smaller space because there's just intense competition in there right now. Um, I still like brick and mortar a lot, and frankly, we are looking at a few concepts in brick and mortar now that we like a lot um, because. To your earlier point, I think it's very hard to build community online, particularly locally. And so I like the idea that there's boutique fitness with community. I like the idea of maybe we'll call it modularity, right? Because that's the hybrid play. So I don't think that people want to come in and do the same style of workout every day anymore. I think they want different types of training. Now, that doesn't mean that it's stupidly designed training, right? But I do think that people like to do yoga and then a boot camp class ish, right? And then uh, go for a jog or a hike. You know, like I think that they want that sort of diversity in their training. Um, and then I think that the communication from a technology standpoint will continue to improve dramatically. So I, I'm not on the bandwagon that. AI chatbots will be how people communicate with gyms or with coaches. But I do think that coaches will deploy communication at scale significantly better. And that communication will in turn tell them when they need to respond as a human. Um, and so we're seeing sentiment analysis being woven into uh, chat functionality today. We're seeing a lot more capabilities of setting up full experiences, you know, front to back on how to communicate with people and how to get behavioral change through that communication. Um, and so we are, we sort of like buying into infrastructure, meaning we have an investment in computer vision. We have an investment in communication. We have a, an investment in um, smart data capture. Um, but all of those companies are attempting to build that into an elegant user experience. Um, so that was somewhat long-winded, but I, I hope I at least gave no, you a No, that was bit. super helpful. I'm, I'm like, my mind is playing ping pong internally <laughs> right now. Yeah, I, I think that um, I agree with you on many of those fronts. And, and the one of 
the need for gyms to be a bit more expansive in their thinking about their deliverables for their members is something that I think about quite often. And I think one of the, the struggles, or I guess one of the challenges that we face, as do many brick and mortars, is how do you continue to upgrade your offerings without losing sight of the principles of your brand? You know, and I love Seth Godin's work. And one of the things he says is that, you know, you have a brand when you can say people like us do things like this. And yep. you have to be careful because if you just start throwing things at the wall to see what sticks, all of a sudden you're no longer, you know, the gym that was drawing in clientele because of you, the established brand that you had created in your local community. And now you're just trying to do a bunch of things uh, and you're doing too many of them quite frankly, oftentimes, and now they're all subpar. So I, you know, it's this, this fine kind of balance between being able to do the thing that you do extraordinarily well, but also being able to test the waters to see what else is viable in your space. And I think that's a hard game to play. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. I think it's a really important point. The concepts that we're looking at when I use the term modularity have that modularity built into the model. And so I don't think that pick a concept. If a, if a brand built all of its notoriety on boxing, right? I don't think probably they're going to end up being an amazing Pilates studio. <laughs> right, I, I would think, be impressed. Yeah, <laughs> I'd right, be really you know, impressed so if someone could pull that off. Right? It's highly unlikely, and and it's because once we have a perception of a brand in our mind, that's that's what we have in our mind, and changing that perception takes many years, not weeks. You know, so I don't think that it would make sense for again the boxing gym to try to become a Pilates gym. That's one of the reasons, though, why disruption happens is because people's preferences do change and they're looking for the best example of that perception. So if these new concepts can come out and capture that desire, they will have success. If they don't, well, then people will just stay with the example that they feel the most comfortable with. Um, but I, I'm pretty darn sure that right now, the end consumer is looking for experiential fitness and they like doing things that are diverse. Now, typically they like a base of something, right? So some people like a base of strength. Some people like a base of spin. Some people like a base of yoga. All good. But typically they like to do other things now. And they've experienced a world that allows them to do that. And part of that reason is because class pass has gotten so big, right? Like, I don't need a freaking membership to go to five different classes a week. I just go to class pass and somebody will give me a deal. I'm not saying that's the best play for the local gym. What I'm I was going to say though, is it's what's interesting though, is there's also something special in being the gym where you can't use class pass. Like in, in other words, like you're the gym that there's such a degree of onboarding that takes place that specializes you that now there's a demand, right? Or at least there is a mystique or like there is this appreciation of the fact that like we are a gym that does things a certain way and you can't just step foot in here on any random day and take part. For sure. Yeah, for sure. If, if you, uh, let me take the training side aside for a moment. If you have a sales and marketing process that brings in new people effectively enough, no doubt about it. I'd never want to discount if I didn't have to. I'd much rather be the more premium brand in the space. 
right? Because the non-premium brand is Planet Fitness and most local gyms aren't going to beat Planet Fitness's price, <laughs> right? So, um, right. so I, I agree with you. I, it's, it's about having something to say to the world, right? So if you have a clear something to say and you market that to the people who appreciate what you're saying, in theory, they should walk into your gym. Um, many local gyms are just dog shit at marketing, right? So they need something like a class pass because they either don't or they don't market well. Um, so it's, it's interesting, right? Which is in theory why franchises should be more successful is because they put marketing systems into play. It doesn't always work out that way. Um, but I think the local gyms, so often they win on the coaches because that's where yep. the relationship takes place. It's the tip of the spear. Well, and I think this is the the dance between the data you speak of and being able to utilize systems to be able to capture some of the biomechanic feedback from people to be able to do things at scale, but also the adherence piece, right? So it's like all of the data in the world probably isn't going to get the busy mom that came home stressed out, show up to the gym. It's the coach that she has a personal connection with. And we, Imagine as we know. But Im imagine this, though. Um, imagine that busy mom. Um, imagine she was wearing, you know, an Apple Watch, and the Apple Watch picked up some sort of spike up in heart rate during the middle of the day when it knew that she was working. Imagine now if I was API'd into a communication system that asked her how she was doing at that moment. Automatically. Right. And then as long as the coach was there to get into any human conversation, you know, that level of efficiency would change the game for these local gyms. So you're, you're speaking on the level of trying to integrate these two systems. Uh, I'm saying, or integrate I'm these saying, systems with I'm the saying coach, they're integrated. I'm saying yeah. they're integrated now. It's just a matter of full commercialization of using it. Um, so that's already in the market right now. And it's, it's just, it's going to get better. Right. So it's, you have to set up how you want that communication flow to happen. But what I'm getting at is I want to see coaches use this technology to their benefit and use it to their efficiency benefit. Because if I know anything about local coaches, they all want more time and more freedom, all of them, <laughs> right? Like it's the age old, this is what we really want. We want to be high level, but if we spend too much time per customer, we make too little money per hour over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's the conversation yep. I've had with coaches. So there has to be um, actual scalability within what a coach does without losing the quality of the coaching. So little things like being able to get into that conversation without needing to scan 75 clients worth of heart rate data to see what where the spikes were right like there's so many instances where if that was just built into your process automatically you would save significant time and you would send the message to the person when they needed it the most which would connect them more to you which would increase their willingness to pay so yeah i guess the more inventory you have on your clients the better you're going to be able to serve them if you use it if you use it right? or, know, the, or know how to read it, you know, it has to be, yeah. it has to be important and an accurate information without a doubt, w without a doubt. Um, and that's hard, right? Like, and that, but the, pr the problem is, is that most coaches I talk to are saying my customers are now asking me questions about this data.
So yeah, they, now where it gets tricky though is that a lot of the data that people are referring to is notoriously bad. Totally. Totally. <laughs> I so, couldn't agree more. So this is this is the big wrench that gets thrown into this mix is like when you have to accept that wearables can be off by like 80% when it comes to things like heart rate and caloric predictions, then having conversations around data becomes a bit more like convoluted because you're like, okay, well, how do I sort through this? Well, heart rate, I think at this point is fairly standardized, right? So it's not that often that your Apple watch will say you're at 150 beats if you're at 40 beats. You know what I mean? Like usually there's at least um, a close enough reading that you can infer something in the moment. I'm also not talking about the coach trying to be um, PhD level. I don't think that's the place for the coach, right? That's too complicated. But I do think that there's enough data now that would suggest um, your client is very stressed or your client isn't sleeping or your client um, is overtraining. I think there's enough systems that can give you a, a pretty decent picture into that. And I don't think it has to be that much more complicated. The question is, is what do you do when those moments happen? That's what I mean about the right message at the right time to the right customer, that to me creates retention. Yeah, no, I, I love that thought uh, that, that, that had me thinking about some things with uh, the way we interact with our clientele. I, but on the flip side, you know, I've, I've ex had experience with quite a few wearables at this point. Um, and I have my own personal vendettas <laughs> and frustrations with them. You know, uh, yeah. I, I used whoop for a really long time. Um, I now have the, the Apple watch ultra and and I, I love some of the features, but I'm the type of person like I don't want my wrist dinging or buzzing at me every five seconds. Agree. So I shut off 90% of features most of the time. Um, yeah. But uh, I'm excited in the spring to kind of to get out and do some of the, the mountain biking and the hiking with uh, with the Apple Watch on hand. It seems like it's it's going to be pretty nifty in that, in that field. Yeah. I mean, it's it's exciting and also probably a little stress inducing for coaches, but there are a lot of niche systems that are coming out that are pretty cool. I mean, I had some good conversations with Frank Overton at FastCat, right? He's, he's got this new optimize technology that's uh, today it's primarily for cycling, you know, so there's really interesting technology that's coming out to better understand these niche audiences of people. Um, I think you'll continue to see that. I mean, we're, you know, we're connected with wild AI. That's all for females, right? That's cycle tracking. That's, you know, basically a lifetime of what the heck does it mean for your body to be reacting the way that it's reacting? I mean, there's super interesting technology that is getting much more user friendly than it was a couple of years ago. So I, I, I think coaches are going to have to be directionally competent in that. Um, so that they can speak effectively enough about what the data might mean. And then I think they should build a network of, you know, whether it's doctor experts or whatever to say, Hey, I think this might be something that you might want to talk to my friend blank, you know, over here, because that's just out of scope for some coaches. Um, mm. and you know, you don't want to go down the deep medical hole unless you want to open yourself up to a lawsuit. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I think it, it, you know, it'll also be important for coaches to be able to triage which data is even relevant to the current goals, or I should say to the current step that the client is on, you know? So yep. it's like, if I have a golfer come to me and they're like, Hey, I'm using this new app and it's, uh, it's, it's taking a look at my swing and I'm like, 
okay, great. But you're like 30 degrees deficient in hip flexion. Like, how about we fix that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that seems like a bigger fish to fry at the moment. Well, and, and therein lies mover, right? The technology of mover. Um, that that's that's movement analysis with a massive database, which is now connected to computer vision. You know, it's coaches can use that technology to be specific and to catalog all of the historic results of their customers. So I, I think coaches can use this technology to their advantage. And I would certainly suggest that because it's it's the difference between six months ago's reading and this time and creating the awareness of how far they've actually come that I believe will get the client excited for the next six months. And I think, you know, historically coaches haven't necessarily done a good enough job of explaining you've gotten a lot better, Sally or Joe or whoever. And I now can show you how much better you've gotten. That's important. It's no different than progress photos, right? It's no different, except you're changing what they're focused on, which I think is a good thing for most people. Yeah, for sure. Now, how do you swim through all this with your own fitness? I mean, how how tangled up are you in in the technology versus kind of like the old school, uh, you know, nitty gritty of of just focusing on movement, uh, you know, in general? I I I test everything because I want to be competent in what's out there, and to your point, how effective or quality the data really is. But I typically fall back on. Um, looking at the data every once in a while. Let's say maybe I'll look at it monthly just to understand directionally what I've done for the month. But otherwise, I'm a feel guy more than anything. But I've also been looking at my own data for a really long time. And if I were to try to get... (laughs) Here's a great example. Here's a story that'll kind of bring it all together. Um, I've done the deep data tracking when I have very specific goals. But right now, I'm looking at this product called Sport IQ Basketballs. It's a censored basketball that all you need is the ball, and it understands everything about your shot, whether you're making or missing shots. It's wild what this ball can do. And I got really interested in getting good at foul shots, like out of nowhere, Derek. I was just like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going <laughs> to see if I can get really good at foul shots. And so almost every day, I take this ball to the gym. And I'll shoot 50 or 100 foul shots and I'll, I'll look at the data to understand, you know, quickness of the shot and angle of release and all that stuff because I want to get better at foul shots. How long will I do this? I don't know, four to six months. And then I'll probably find something else I'm interested in. That's where I am at in my fitness, yeah. right? Like I'm, I'm healthy enough based on my data. And so I like doing these four to six month little challenges that I create for myself. And um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not strength training or running or whatever. Like I still always do that. I maintain that base, but I like getting into little things that keep my attention to go, you know, back to the front of the the podcast because I love to learn and grow in certain things that kind of capture my attention. No, that's great. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's, I'm, it's funny. Cause like, as I feel like as I get older, the more I rewind my tape to, to wanting to do the things that I did, you know, like in playing in sports and being adventurous and getting outside. And like, now all of those things are starting to come back. You know, I feel like the gym was my playground for the better part of a decade. And now I feel myself having this yearning to want to do, uh, more exploratively with my movement and, and sports selection. So, uh, I, I'm sure that's only going to continue to grow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and I think that's human. 
right? And that's it's it's not realistic for somebody to want to do bodybuilding for 50 years straight. Very few people want that, but they might want it big for two or three years, right? And it's like, and to your point on um, the right brand for the right audience, if you have the brand that helps people for that two or three year window, and you're the best in your area for it, you can have an unbelievable business. Yeah, or if you're the brand that is able to spread your offerings out to be able to facilitate multiple types of fitness, you can be attractive for the people that once they leave that phase of their life. Sure. Yep. And part of that is this modularity concept. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but and also, you know, we we talked about this a little bit, but it's it's the communal aspect as well. You know, like totally. being able to be part of something that's that where you're like these people are now my friends. I consider them, you know, to be close. And, uh, I, I know that as much as the, the texting automations are going to come out, if I haven't been to the gym in a while that my, my gym buddies are also going to be messaging me as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's incredibly important. And I really still believe that it's primarily on the coach and or the gym to foster that sort of environment in those, those connections. Yeah. Now, you're obviously, a, you know, a, a go-getter of a person and someone that's very highly uh, motivated and disciplined. You know, do you have any advice for people that might feel like they're stuck in a rut or uh, are unsure of their own personal direction? Sure. Uh, let me always say, take it with a grain of salt, you know, so so don't just listen to me. But I would <laughs> say if you if you want to make change, it has to be highly meaningful to you. Um, and I would say that most people don't get to the root of why it's so meaningful. So for example, uh, you'll often hear somebody that says, I want to get in shape. My first question as a coach is I'd say, what does getting in shape mean? And they might say, well, I want to lose 20 pounds. It's like, oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, what would 20 pounds mean to you? And that might open up a, a rabbit hole of, well, um, I might be able to feel better. I might be able to um, play with my kids more. I might, I might look better. And I start asking questions around which one is it actually, right? Like, what are you really connected to for this 20 pounds? I'm, I'm just making this up right now. But Oftentimes, I have seen that people don't feel loved, don't feel significant, right? It, it always gets down to the basic human needs. So, you know, I always liked what Tony Robbins said about the six basic human needs. So it's, you know, um, certainty, uncertainty, significance, love and connection, growth and giving or, you know, contribution, right? And so usually this comes down to one or two of those six basic human needs. If I can get them to connect it to those basic human needs and get them to become conscious of that basic human need when they make the inevitable bad decision or want to make the bad decision that led them to 20 pounds overweight, now I have connection. So I would, I would really encourage people to ask themselves those questions and be as honest as you can with the answer. It's like the asking why five times, basically. So once you emotionally connect to why you really believe you need to do something, it starts to allow you to become the person that already doesn't have that problem. So for example, it's funny, I just had some conversations with people about this, but a lot of people that have poor eating habits, 
view themselves as somebody with poor eating habits. And that generally makes sense. But, but if they think about, you know, an Olympic athlete, they're like, oh no, an Olympic athlete probably wouldn't have poor eating habits. But imagine that perception, right? If your perception is you have poor eating habits, you have to roll the boulder up the hill every single time. I have bad eating habits. It's like, I am somebody who has bad eating habits. And you can see how psychologically that screws with people's minds. You have to become the type of person who doesn't have bad eating habits because it's lower stress and lower friction to make the better decision. So, so many people that went to CrossFit, and I believe one of the reasons that CrossFit uses the word athlete is because athletes don't have those same eating habit problems. So perception shifts and it's lower stress and lower friction to make better decisions. So if you can combine the emotional connection of why you are attempting to do what you're doing mixed with seeing yourself as that person, keep in mind, that's a muscle you have to build, right? Like you need to practice seeing yourself as that person, the easier it gets to make real change that lasts. That was something that was a commonality amongst uh, everyone that was overweight or obese and then not only lost the weight but kept it off is they said something to the effect of, I had to change my identity. Like I had to change who yes. I was and how I perceived myself to be in the world. Um, yep. And one, one too, of the things- too hard otherwise. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, you're good. And, and one of the things you got at the heart out there is there's this, there's this kind of like- dual experience going on where from the perspective of the coach, when someone first walks in the door, the, the ultimate challenge is the fact that you're dealing with somebody that probably hasn't gone through that level of questioning and is also uh, equally unwilling to be vulnerable <clears throat> to a certain degree. And this isn't always the case, but it often is. Yep. And then for the client, it's that experience over the course of you, if you can maintain them through 90 days and then ultimately six months and up to a year, all of a sudden, I think some of the ability for them to better define their goals comes by the way of this open sense of vulnerability, or I should say willingness to be more vulnerable with themselves in asking those more deeper kind of intrinsic questions and getting at the root cause, as you say, as to what they really want and why they want it. And to absolutely nail home the point that you made 45 minutes ago, Typically, coaches that have significantly more experience navigate how to ask those questions, when to ask those questions, and how aggressively to ask those questions to those clients better than coaches with little experience. You know, so to your point, you can tell that um, what you're saying is don't ask these crazy aggressive questions the first time they sit down in front of you because they're probably not going to give you the right answers or they or they're afraid or whatever but you can weave these questions into their experience over time. And that's what helps them make more and more change and, and make big, consistent life, you know, behavioral shifts. I love it. I love it. I think that message is <clears throat> perfectly timed with the, the new year, just having passed. Um, and, and one of the things I always remind the members is that your new year can begin whenever you want. Yeah. You know, um, you know, you can decide on March 1st or June 1st, uh, that you're, you're, you know, ready for identity change. So, um, yeah, well, Hey Jim, this was, uh, this was a blast, man. I had, a, I had a good time. Um, there's yeah, so, so many other directions I would love to go with another podcast. So I'll definitely have you on again at some point, if you'd be happy to get on and we can, uh, dive deep down another rabbit hole. 
Yeah, that's, that'd be great, man. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks for the earlier Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. No worries. Hey, at least I know now that I can function at this time so I can leave that time slot open. <laughs> this is pre-coffee me too. This is like I haven't touched coffee yet, so this is great. Now I know. I'm good. Uh, awesome. Well, hey, tell the uh, audience where they can learn more about you. Oh, um, I I always make this joke, but you can email me if you want. I'm just jim at thesagehouse.com. <laughs> Um, rarely people do it. That's why I always, I, I always give the option, but, um, otherwise, um, yeah, just go to thesagehouse.com and you can check out what we're doing. Very cool. Well, Hey Jim, have a great rest of your weekend and, uh, thanks again for hopping on. Yeah. Thanks Derek. I appreciate being here. Thank you again for jumping on the podcast today. I just want to take a quick second to remind you that we post a lot of free and helpful content on our social media pages. You can find us at Hardbat Athletics on Instagram and Facebook. Visit our website at www.hardbatathletics.com to learn more about what we do at our facility. Let's keep raising the standard together.